Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cave of the Cross Projects. I'm Patrick, and uh, switching up on you a little bit. Um, I, I, I'm apologize for giving you another solo episode of me, uh, but uh, this one was uh, uh, again to the high school class for my church, and I gave uh, the historical arguments for uh, the resurrection occurring this occurring uh, day after uh, Easter. That kind of makes sense, and also uh, we have a special episode kind of coming up. Uh, where we wanted to uh, get back into John Frame's book, but then, again, take another pause for uh, this uh, special episode and then uh, pick up again. So uh, this one kind of uh, made the calendar look uh, a little uh, orderly for you. Uh, so hopefully uh, you'll enjoy this uh, uh, short presentation on uh, historical proofs of the resurrection, and uh, we'll see you next time as we... Uh, uh, journey through uh, chapter five of John Frame's book. Uh, if you ask people what the most important thing in Christianity is, a good number of people are going to say the resurrection, right? Makes sense. It's hard to argue with that. It's the moment when the work of Jesus culminates to show his earthly ministry and his death wasn't in vain, right? We celebrate it during Easter. It's one of the few holy days that the Puritans recognized. They hated Christmas. They pretty much banned it. Uh, Christmas gets the good press in the world, and the movies of the resurrection of just aren't really there to be found. Christmas gets the highest point. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the moment us Christians recognize, and it's the big moment of everything laid the foundation for that. But can we be confident? Can we be confident it happened? And how can we have confidence that it took place? Well, but first, we have to find out, before we get to the end of the story, we have to figure out why we got here. Why did Jesus have to die in order to be resurrected in the first place? So we all know the story. Adam and Eve, fruit, snake, right? But in uh, Genesis 3:16, we see the first gospel message put in place. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is the first reminder of hope that Adam and Eve have even before they find out their own punishment. Then comes the even worse news. In Adam, we all take part in sin, right? Romans 5, 12, and 14, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Right? If you're going through the Romans road, this sounds familiar. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam was the first man, and there is going to be a second man who fulfills the roles that he failed at. So what are the consequences of sin? We all know this one, too. Romans 6.23, the wages, the things, the payments that we get for doing the things that we want to do that are according to our nature, is death. And it not only affects us, but the entire creation. So the simple sin of disobedience affects our relationship with God, where he is forced to expel us from his presence and his blessing and his promises. But the repercussions reach to our animal friends, to the trees, even to the stars in the Orion Star Nebula. But the story doesn't end in chapter 3 of Genesis. God preserves a remnant and offers promises where he will write his law on our hearts. He will change our hearts from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And the hatred towards him will have a beating heart to live and work for him. 
How does God remind his people to be on the lookout for the coming promised one? And also to remind them of the direct impact sin requires. Well, there you have the uh, sacrificial uh, uh, system uh, codified. And we have to think about here when it's established. It's rooted in the uh, Passover sacrifice. We talked about that if you were here for my talk uh, a couple weeks ago. God uses the blood and death of the spotless lamb to not visit death upon the Hebrews. And then Jesus ties that in with the Last Supper. But from there, the temple sacrifices are codified. They're established. And think about the impact that this should have on the people. You, you're with your father. You've uh, found this uh, innocent lamb. You've either brought him up or you've purchased it for a decent price. It's innocent, unblemished. Your family has laid hands on it to signify a transfer of your sins to it. You stand in line as the priest slit the throat of the lamb and sprinkled the blood on the altar. You look up and down the line, right? And you see thousands of people with their own lamb waiting in line, each one with their perfect spotless lamb. There has to be a better way, right? The high priest, the only one who is able to walk into the innermost portion of the tent and meetings, the holy of holies, a rope is tied around his ankle or his waist in case he were to suddenly die and the other people couldn't go to retrieve them because they have not been specially cleansed to enter before the presence of God. Something we're gonna look, we look forward to in post-resurrection. And year after year, lamb after lamb, slaughter after slaughter, rebellion after rebellion, and sin after sin, he takes part, the high priest takes part in the slaughtering of the innocence of the wicked. He looks upon the stains on that altar year after year and sees and asks, there's got to be a better way. The sacrifices aren't there to take away sin. The hoping of the coming Messiah is what saves. A righteous heart that produces good deeds is what is desired. Prophecies are made of the Messiah, the coming one. Qualities and characteristics are foretold. He is going to be both a son, but also God. How is that possible? But also, why is that needed? Just as the sacrificial system was established, the blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sin. Only a perfect sacrifice of one to represent mankind was needed. So a fully human being who was fully perfect would have to be in place. But even before the birth, we are conceived in sin. And our lives are evidence that sin is transmitted to us. And on top of that, he's going to have to be so powerful that he withstands the full wrath of God while taking upon all the sins of his people they committed, are committing, and will ever commit until the new heavens and the new earth come. He needs to be fully God. So yes, the resurrection is important. It is the proof that God the Father finds the sacrifice of the fully man and fully God perfect, and his sacrifice is also perfect. But we are unable to piecemeal things away from the Christian religion and boil it down only to the resurrection. But it is important. So let's go into the purpose of this talk. And I'm skipping a lot, right? Like how the proof of the resurrection is not where I'd start with people who I'm talking to about the reliability of Christianity. Again, it is important, and I'm sure it's going to come up in the conversation, but I'm going to figure out how we both can claim something as proof and to do so, we'd both have to present our worldviews in which we look at life and all objects for evidence and see if we have explanatory power in that worldview. But when, when it comes to historical evidence, especially 2,000 years of all sorts of people trampling over our crime scene, 
it makes it really hard to point to a spot with our magnifying glass and go, aha, here it is, proof. On top of that, we're looking for not a body, right? But we can do that today. I was just watching a trial from uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, where a man was recently convicted of murder for uh, a crime that uh, they claim that he, he uh, committed, and there was no body, there was no murder weapon, but he was still convicted. Uh, but we do have a story where a body appeared again. So that's helpful, right? And so uh, we move on to uh, looking at the uh, evidences for the, the uh, resurrection. And if you want to know more about this, I'm going to plug my channel a couple times because everyone needs a podcast these days, but uh, uh, Tony and I, Tony Gavan, uh, if you remember him, uh, he and I interviewed Jay Warner Wallace for our podcast, and you can go and find those interviews for the resurrection of Jesus at kidsacross.com slash dragnet. Dragnet's an old TV show that was really popular back in the day, so that's why we chose it for him. All right, so because the resurrection is a historical event and not one where we can do scientific testing on, we have to resort to the same pro process we establish proof of other events of history, and that's taking eyewitnesses and their testimony of the event and looking for the internal consistent explanation that fits the facts. <clears throat> but one thing also doesn't, uh, we don't want to pass over, is that we're not sitting here as only naturalists, right? We don't just throw up our hands to the sky and says, this is all there is. This is all I'm able to do uh, and see available to us. We aren't casting the dice down and saying nothing can be known about the outcome of these dice until they come to rest. We do have the internal conviction of the Holy Spirit. We are living in a post-resurrection, post-Pentecost uh, world. And so God saves us through his calling to us at the time of place he chose before the foundation of the world and has placed his spirit in our hearts so that we are able to follow him. And that spirit testifies to us of the truth of the resurrection. But it's also not to say we are to close our eyes to the world around us. After all, whose creation is it? It's God's creation, right? And so all truth is God's truth. All things are the Lord's. And so we can look to the whole world and see. You can't use, uh, the, the claim is you can't use the Bible because it has supernatural elements. Well, you mean like the resurrection of a guy who claims to be fully God and fully man? That's, that's the whole argument. The whole argument is supernatural. That's, that's the point. Plus, in a world where a random chance dictates our every action, why is uh, it not fully believable to, for it just to happen that one guy who died didn't suddenly pop back up into existence? And C.S. Lewis wrote about this very uh, presuppositionally in his book, Miracles. He says this, he says, quote, For this reason, the question whether miracles occur can never be answered simply by experience. Every event which might claim to be a miracle is, in the last resort, something presented to our senses, something seen, heard, touched, smelled, or tasted. And our senses are not infallible. If anything extraordinary seems to have happened, we can always say that we have been the victims of an illusion. If we hold a philosophy which excludes the supernatural, this is what we always shall say. What we learn from experience depends on the kind of philosophy we bring to the experience. It is therefore useless to appeal to the experience before we have settled, as well as can be, the philosophical question. And one last caveat. This isn't everything. I'm not going to deal with all the counterclaims and the counter-counterclaims. I'm also leaving out conversations about reliability of the Bible and taking for granted that Jesus existed, even though a majority of scholars, um, more than a majority of scholars, believe that he did. Um, this is more to show the avenues that you can take to have confidence in the resurrection. And confidence, confide, with fide, fidelism. 
with faith. How do we have confidence in the resurrection? So there are three main avenues that we can take when talking about the proof of the resurrection. There is the eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. There's the post-mortem appearances, which are uh, Jesus appearing after the, the, his death, and how early the early church formed itself on the basis of the belief of the resurrection had occurred. Okay. So first we have the disciples preaching. First, the disciples preaching the resurrection would not have made any sense if the tomb was not empty. The Messiah had come, and it's Jesus, and he was publicly executed uh, as a criminal by Rome and backed by the Pharisees. And his body was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich Sadducee, and there are Roman guards set to guard the entrance of the tomb with a large rock in front of it. And Jesus was raised from the dead. Just, just don't go look, even though we're in the city in the place where it happened. Don't go look. But the very first message of Acts 2 is this. After hiding, being locked uh, behind locked doors, scared that the might of Rome would come down upon them as well, Peter and the eleven stand before Jerusalem in the very city where the death and the resurrection happened, and he proclaimed this in Acts 2. So if you turn with me to Acts 2, starting in verse 22. 2, 22 of Acts. <coughs> Acts 2, 22 through 32. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my souls to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. Uh, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And this is Peter going back and saying, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, confide, with faith, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. In verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God, raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Verse 41, so that those who received his words were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, if you could visit David's tomb, if it was known, if it was a known place, if you could go and visit it, you could visit Jesus' tomb as easily. Why would anyone believe if they could just go to that tomb and say, uh, this sealed up grave is an empty, right? The, the, the Jewish leaders would have pointed to it. Uh, they would have asked Pilate to have the guard roll away the stone and given guided tours showing the dead Messiah. That would have been the end of the Christian movement. But it continued, and it caused the Jewish leaders to still deal with the movement, so much so that they sent Saul of Tarsus to help stop the movement. Also, Jer Joseph of Ar Arimathea, his, his tomb being used, he was a Sadducee. Do we remember the difference between Pharisee and Sadducee? Remember the old joke, Sadducee, they won't see the resurrection. That's how you can know. So they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. What was it 
uh, that, uh, that set them apart. It was the resurrection of the dead. If the disciples were to make up stories about the resurrection, Joseph of Arimathea as a Sadducee would be a terrible, horrible choice to point to. But we have no objection to the resurrection by Joseph. Next is the gospel witnesses. The death, burial, and resurrection are accounted for in early eyewitness testimony as found in the gospels. The gospels' accounts point, uh, provide firsthand accounts of many facts of Jesus' life. Mark has taken down the words of Peter. Matthew, as a former tax collector, was used uh, to taking account of information. Luke was a doctor and interviewed a number of eyewitnesses, and John was part of the inner circle of Jesus. The charge that these writings appear to be late uh, to be believable, there are a number of answers to be given. We also have early writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians, who uh, is writing a mere number of years after the resurrection. And he describes what was given to him at an earlier time by his disciples, by the disciples. So if you turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we'll see one of the very first creeds of the early church. 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 3. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 15, just uh, doing 3 through 5. For I delivered to you, this is Paul speaking, as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The leader of Rome during this time of Jesus' death was Tiberius Caesar. Right? He was the most famous person alive at the time of Jesus. He held military command. He was, had political power. He expanded the most expansive empire ever into the unknown world for them. And this is what is said about the proof of Tiberius Caesar's existence from a historian. This is his reign, Tiberius Caesar, is known from four sources. A brief record of someone else during his reign, uh, two works written some 80 to 90 years later, and a book written 400 years later. These four things disagree among themselves in the wildest possible fashions, both in the major matters of political action or motive and in specific details of minor events. But this does not prevent the belief that the material of Tacticus, which is one of the uh, sources, can be used to write a history of Tiberius. So that's the most powerful man in the entire world at the time of Jesus. Uh, do you know uh, one of the works not mentioned here by the historian? Luke 3, 1 through 2. In the 15 years in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod uh, being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ithri and Trachitinus and uh, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Talk about a historical document of things that can be drawn in history and pointed to. Luke is making a, a, a very specific uh, time claim here. Even prominent people like Alexander the Great have third-hand accounts that have come 300 and 400 years later and give us a rough idea of what his life was like. And this kid, 26 years old, conquered the known world by the age of 26. And we know about him 300 and 400 years later, uh, according to historians. Historians look for at least two independent eyewitnesses to establish historical reliability of an event. With the resurrection, you have at least six independent witnesses to the empty tomb, and a number of ones we'll discuss here. 
But the scholars point to the burial of Jesus in the tomb as one of the, quote, one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus, end quote. And for more of that, you can go to caveofthecross.com slash truthanddoubt, where we talk about uh, issues with the Bible and uh, uh, the trustworthy of Scripture and the resurrection accounts as well. But we ask the question then, who were the very first witnesses to the resurrection and the empty tomb? Well, if you're going to make up a story about the resurrection, here's something you do. Jesus comes out of the tomb. He's as tall as a mountain. Two angels flank uh, next to him uh, on side. They're as tall as he is as well, as tall as a mountain. Behind him from the tomb, there emerges the cross that he was on. The tomb emerges from, or the cross emerges from the tomb. And it speaks, and it tells God in heaven that the gospel has gone forth to those in Sheol. And this is seen by Pilate, the Roman guards, the Jewish leaders, and onlookers. This is a story. This is Christian fiction. Well, I wouldn't call it Christian fiction. This is false Christian fiction from the Gospel of Peter by the Gnostics, which is written in the third century, so some 400 years later. Well, what you wouldn't do is this. Mark 16, 1 through 7. <clears throat> when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And the very early of the first day of the week, when the sun had risen and they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And, the, and, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as you were told. So we have Jewish women as the eyewitnesses. Well, why is this important? Well, in Jewish culture of the time, the culture, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. Jewish historian Josephus writes, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the uh, levity and boldness of their sex. Josephus never uses female witnesses in his writings except when he's forced to do so as women of a battle were the only survivors. Women in most cases were not called to testify in trials and established sin or establishing sin. It's not, it wasn't forbidden, but it was unusual cases. And there is no biblical basis for this either. This is uh, uh, Jewish social norms. Socially, women were on the lower rung of the Jewish social ladder. A Jewish rabbi writing in the Jerusalem Talmud, which is uh, part of their uh, kind of expanded teaching, said, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to a woman. Rabbinical uh, text condition uh, says, happy is he whose children are male, but unhappy is he whose children are female. Or the prey of the Jewish Mishnah says, blessed are you, Lord of God, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. In historical studies, the argument from embarrassment is a good indicator of truth. You are less likely to lie about yourself or being foolish or wrong, and to put it down in writing lends credibility to your source. Right? So we look at the, the Gospel of Mark with Peter. He talks about his denial of Jesus. That's a big thing to admit, of turning or, or not speaking up and turning away uh, to, to, even to a small child who Jesus was to him. The gospel writers talk about how they didn't understand what Jesus was teaching at the time and had to be babied along by Jesus. And here, women witnesses were used as the first one lends a lot of credibility to the story. 
They were the ones revealed, uh, that revealed Jesus was gone, and they were the ones to go and tell the men, disciples, who were still hiding in the locked room. How embarrassing, but also how glorious. Well, next, we have the postmortem appearances. So uh, we're staying in 1 Corinthians 15, but look down at uh, verses 5 and 8. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. So you have Peter and the twelve apostles. Luke 24 has an interview by Luke done with, uh, with unknown of these two unnamed disciples on the road to Aramaeus. And they met the risen Jesus, and that Jesus had already appeared to Peter. It talks about that. And in a later portion, after they had told their story and eaten, Jesus appeared to them in, uh, to the twelve. And the independent witness of this is found in uh, John 20, 19 through 20. So we have two independent witnesses to what is being talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, which is one of the earliest writings of the earliest creeds of, of the church. Then we have the 500 witnesses. There seems to be little reason for Paul to mention the 500 mostly still living witnesses to those he's writing to, unless the challenge was for them to go and talk to them. Why talk about 500? This challenge is offered by Paul, who seems to know of the event and the people personally, because he knows, that, he knows personally some of them have died. And he's writing to the Corinthians, who seem to have some knowledge in order for them to know where to go and uh, where to look for the witnesses. Next, you have James, the brother of Jesus. Think about what it was like living up to your literally perfect older brother who thought he was the Messiah and God. For those of you who have older siblings, it's true, they're perfect, but they might not be God. So it's just a known fact. But James and the rest of his brothers and sisters didn't believe Jesus during his earthly ministry. Mark 3.21 says that James thought Jesus was out of his mind. In John 7, 1 through 10, it explicitly says this. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works of your doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. Yet we see that unbelief turn into belief. In 1 Corinthians 9.5, it says, we do, uh, we, uh, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, uh, as do the other apostles, and the brother of the Lord and Cephas. In Galatians 2.9, Paul lists James, John, and Peter as the three pillars of the church. And James is, is only one of two people to meet Paul after being brought into Jerusalem, and he became the leader of uh, the Jerusalem church in Acts 21. And of course, he wrote the book of James. But what caused this? What caused this change? Seeing his brother's death on the cross and he just felt really guilty? Well, no, that would only confirm his belief that Jesus was not sane. It seems like something huge and unexpected could cause this revolutionary change in doubting James. But there's one kind of even bigger and better that we can point to here, Saul of Tarsus. The argument of Saul of Tarsus lending credibility to the resurrection is huge. Paul's own testimony would make him the least likely convert. He was a Roman citizen who was taught by the best the Pharisees had to offer. He was given the authority and had the means to wage war against the early Christians, even so far to do what the Jewish leaders were stopped from doing, carrying out capital punishment, or at least inciting riots uh, that they could uh, kill uh, the Christians. 
It was Paul who stood by the cloaks of, of those who had stoned Stephen. It was Paul who had first active, he was the first active enemy of Christianity. He heard the message of Stephen and those he imprisoned. It would take some direct miracle to change his mind, to give up any, everything, his status, ease of non-laborious work, and cause him to be a Christ follower. This is a huge argument from embarrassment for Paul to make. What's your testimony? Well, I killed a bunch of them, and then I became one, right? Paul went back to tent making. He lost his status among his people. He hitched his ride to the people he killed and went after. He was shipwrecked, beaten, whipped, stoned, left for dead. He went out into the world and uh, the dangers and limited resources and used what he was trained in the Old Testament to point to the fulfillment of messianic prophecies. And it was the only ones that Jesus filled. And then he was killed by Rome. He never became rich. He lost status, not gained it. What other than the resurrection would cause such a change in Saul, who was renamed by Jesus himself, Paul? And for more on um, why we should believe Christianity, cavethecross.com slash why believe. Look at that. So, the six facts are usually agreed by scholars as happening and make up what Gary Habermas calls uh, the minimal facts case. So here's the six. One, it's attested that Jesus died by crucifixion. Two, that very soon afterwards, his followers had real experiences that they were actual appearances of the risen Jesus, including having a meal with him, including being taught and shown uh, scripturally where Jesus was in the Old Testament. Three, that their lives were transformed as the result even to the point of being willing to die specifically for their faith in the resurrection message. Again, what did Christianity conquer the world by? Not by the sword, but by the word. They went out and preached the good news. They didn't have uh, uh, the, the idea of overthrowing the Roman Empire or undoing the, the slavery system. They didn't rebel in the way that we think of rebellion. They said no to Caesar as being the one true Lord, and they, they did it through the word. Four, that these things were taught uh, very early, soon after the crucifixion. Five, that James, Jesus' unbelieving brother, became a Christian due to his own experience and that he was the resurrected Christ. And six, that the Christian persecutor Paul, formerly known as uh, Saul of Tarsus, also became a believer after similar experiences. Early creeds like we looked at in 1 Corinthians 15 have earlier dates to no later than the mid-40s by scholars. And some scholars have gone to state the creed was dated within a year or two of the death of Jesus, and even one respected scholar stating six months after the death of Jesus. There isn't time for, for lies to come in because these things were known. They were codified. They were carried out. These were uh, probably early songs sung by the early Christians to uh, get in their mind as, as uh, people without a scripture at the time, other than the Old Testament. So, the origin of the church. Where would these changed lives and religious words of memory come from? How would people who are both men and women, Jew and Greek and barbarian, poor and rich, slave and free, set aside their most basic beliefs about their worldview and forsake their friends, their family, their status, their very lives? How could those same people, those same types of people, men and women, continue for 2,000 years through wars and famines, wealth and poverty, established on every continent, rooted and building up the uh, the entirety of Western thought and society. We'll turn with me one, one last time to Hebrews 12. And I brought this up last time when I talked about the importance of the church. And here 
we can finish uh, uh, the portion of Scripture. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a, so great a cloud of witnesses, those who had come before them in the church, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of, of the throne of God. How did Jesus found and perfect our faith? How did he endure the cross? How is he living and seated at the right hand of the throne of God? I posit that the Holy Spirit testifies that it is because Jesus of Nazareth was a fully man and fully God Messiah, and that living a perfect life gave himself freely over to die on the cross. And after fully dying and after taking the full weight of sin and God's wrath on himself, he was buried and in three days the boulder was rolled away and he stepped forth from the tomb alive and glorified having defeated both sin and death. And it is that Jesus that you and I have the privilege of worshiping and proclaiming to the nations to bow before as the one true perfecter of our faith who forgives sin, who offers us communion with God that was removed from us in the garden. And we can come with full clarity, before the throne of God, like only the high priest was able to do. We don't have to, to sacrifice the, the blood of innocent lambs because one was made one time, and that's Jesus Christ. We are to bow in awe and love of him. He is risen.